Governor DeSantis versus Big Tech. Florida's aim to prevent censorship, political favoritism, and mishandling of personal data on social media platforms. But is it constitutional? Professor Clay Calvert from the University of Florida walks us through it. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. All right. Welcome back, listeners. So glad you're here. We've been putting this episode together for a while, but I think it's a topic that's of great importance for our our cultural notions of free speech. But before we start getting into all this, we need to thank our wonderful sponsor because no bucks, no buck Rogers. We want to thank our sponsor, Noda. Noda is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. How true. How true. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's NOTA spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. Okay, let's say hello to our guest, Professor Clay Calvert from the University of Florida. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, absolutely. You know, this has been a real important topic uh, for us on this show, uh, you know, since it started back in 2020, getting into uh, this year. You know, we've been doing a lot of coverage on uh, censorship, on cancel culture, on social media, and, uh, you know, just kind of these different lawsuits that have come up over time here. And I think it's a really important one to cover. You know, today we're going to, it's going to be a confluence of uh, free speech, First Amendment, Section 230, maybe some preemption. But uh, it's definitely a topic I'm concerned about. You know, I think our country, obviously, very politically divided, and I'm seeing stuff that I'm getting uncomfortable with, this, these cancellations. And I just, I'm hearing things that they're going to start two different economies, you know, one for left to center folks and one for right of center folks. And it concerns me because I don't think that is a good formula for uniting us together. And so anyway, thank you for coming on the show to talk about this with us. And, you know, I want to open up, Professor, just kind of uh, talk about your bona fides here. Now, you've got kind of a mixed background. Part of it's in law, part of it's, uh, you know, for the university, non-law sector. But you're, you're the, uh, the professor of law, Breckner eminent scholar in mass communication, and also the director of the Marion B. Breckner First Amendment Project at University of Florida. And as I understand, this is a uh, co-appointment. So it's between the Levin College of Law and the College of Journalism and Communication. So I guess said another way, you're our perfect guest today, but tell us about the work you do there. Sure. And that's exactly right. It's a joint appointment between the law school and basically the journalism school. So I teach a combination of law students right now. I'm teaching media law to 40 students in what they call a high flex format, meaning a bunch of them are online and some of them are actually in class, which is nice. Uh, And then I also teach an undergraduate mass media law class that targets our advertising, journalism, telecommunication majors and public relation majors. So that's basically what I do in the First Amendment Project. We do outreach to the public. We publish law journal articles, op-ed columns and give uh, media comments. Excellent. That's excellent. You know, and one other thing I want to say too, you know, I, I realized that uh, Fred Levin recently passed away. I saw on social media, I believe it was from uh, complications of COVID-19. And so I want to send out best wishes and prayers to uh, his family. You know, he was a guest of ours many years ago. We had uh, him and a bunch of his peers on talking about the uh, Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame. And we talked a little bit about his book. I think it was called What and Give Up Showbiz. And uh, it was about his <laughs> colorful career. Really great guy sharing his time with us, especially for me, who was early in my career here at Legal Talk Network. It was really nice to have, you know, giants of litigation come on and talk with our network. Uh, show got great, uh, got great metrics. So uh, thank you, Fred, and uh, uh, prayers and best wishes to your family. Absolutely. He'd appreciate it. 
All right. Well, let's uh, let's start with our topic today, Professor. You know, these these early proposals by Governor DeSantis, and and I, and I know that there's an origin story behind it that we'll get into. But you know, Governor DeSantis, you know, he was concerned about censorship, political favoritism, and problems associated with personal data on these uh, large tech platforms. Uh, I guess more particularly aimed at social media. So he gave a series of press conferences where he flushed out several issues that he would like featured in legislation. So can we go through some of those and then we'll uh, we'll get into more of the specifics as we go on? Sure, absolutely. And I think, you know, to contextualize this, it really all stems back from January 8 of this year, which is when Twitter deplatformed President Trump. Right. And there was a lot of uproar over that. And many people started recognizing the immense power that social media platforms, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, hold. Florida being a Republican red state, essentially, and Governor DeSantis being a Republican, have decided to take action against this. I think they perceive that there is a lot of bias against conservatives, whether that's accurate or not. I think that's the perception out there. And many conservatives feel that these social media platforms unfairly take down their content. And when President Trump was deplatformed in early January, I think that that's what triggered this. Okay, well, let's get into some of the elements that he brought forth that uh, he would like to turn into legislation. I understand not all of them made it there at least yet, but let's talk about some of these uh, elements that at least got the uh, the media to respond to some of his recommendations. Sure, and you're absolutely correct. Some of them not made it in yet, but I think the biggest controversial one is uh, a provision that would essentially prohibit the deplatforming of political candidates seeking office here in the state of Florida, and then upon a penalty of $100,000 a day, this is again, has not made it into legislation yet, but $100,000 a day penalty for those social media platforms that do deplatform a candidate for public office here in the state of Florida. And I think that's obviously the most controversial one because it essentially, you're telling a social media platform, you have to allow someone to speak. You cannot use your terms of service and remove them as Twitter did with President Trump. Yeah, let's understand there were some uh, in-kind contributions requirements there. So if the algorithms can be shown to favor one political party versus another, there was some daily fines associated with that. Yeah, that would be another situation, too. And so a lot of it does with the tracking, you know, of they're going to be trying to monitor the sites much more closely. So that clearly is one of the major issues that we would have here. I think on the the deplatforming part by itself, it, it really raises an interesting First Amendment question about a right not to speak. You know, we know the First Amendment protects a right to speak, but the Supreme Court is also making it clear, obviously, it protects a right not to be compelled to speak. And so essentially by requiring platforms not to take somebody down, essentially, uh, that raises that First Amendment right not to speak. Can Twitter say, hey, you know, we're, we engage in the speech business. That's how the First Amendment comes into play. And we would like, essentially, not to convey this person's speech. That's, that's going to be a great, you know, if this ever becomes law, uh, that'll be a fascinating argument, I think. Yeah, no, that was the one when, when I heard those remarks and read about those remarks uh, online, that was the one I was like, yeah, that's going to have the most difficulty because essentially you're saying to a platform, if you don't want to do business with this person, now you have to. Exactly right. I mean, that's that's exactly right. You have to deal with this person. And, and you know, these, t- as you know, that type of law, because it raises a First Amendment based question based upon the content, you know, you're taking down someone because you don't like their content. And now you have to leave up their content. That would trigger what we call strict scrutiny. That would be a very high standard for the state of Florida to meet. They'd have to prove a compelling interest, an interest of the highest order, and show that there are no other ways to prove that interest. 
And we can speculate what that interest would be, and that would simply be that the public has a right to hear the viewpoints of all candidates for public office. And that sounds legitimate. Is it a compelling interest? That's one matter. And is there another way that we could expose the public to the viewpoints to someone who may be deplatformed as an alternative of serving that interest? Okay, now you're opening the door to Section 230, but I do want to just quickly touch upon some of the data control and transparency requirements that uh, Governor DeSantis was talking about. I mean, absolutely. So a couple of things would be one of the one of the issues is if you uh, are on this, if you are a member of one of these platforms, there's a lot of disclosure requirements and opt out provisions. And I think that's something that we actually just saw come into play this week with House Bill 969. Basically, it's all about data privacy and protection. And, and to some extent, it, it tracks California Consumer Protection Act that was adopted in 2018 and went into effect in 2020. It would give consumers the ability to know, essentially, what material is being collected from them. They could make requests, actually. I think it's every two years. They could say, okay, tell me what information you have about me. They would have opt-out provisions. And there would also be requirements of having links on all the sites. So if you think about some of the European regulations uh, that we see with the general data protection regulation, and again, California adopted something very similar to this, this, I think, is, is a little bit less controversial because it's much more in the, in the way of disclosure to consumers and gives them the ability to opt out if they don't want to have their data collected. So I think that's kind of less controversial and is tracking a lot of what California has already tried to do. And they have a draft of that that'll be considered in this uh, legislative uh, session in the Florida House of Representatives, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes, that's correct. And so they're they're dubbing it Transparency and Technology Act. And I'm looking at one of the documents right now from the House of the Majority Leader in the Florida House of Representatives. And it's framed like this on the document that they've sent out. We cannot allow big tech companies to operate in darkness while manipulating social media, a kind of 21st century public square. You know, in these days, anytime you see big modifying something like big pharma or big ag, you know somebody's in trouble, right? I mean, that's just the framing of that issue. And so part of that language, as this has been framed, is it's discussing the internet social media platforms as, quote, a kind of 21st century public square. And I think that's important, and courts have addressed that in really two contexts. And one was the Knight First Amendment Institute's case against Donald Trump when he blocked people on Twitter. And the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York Uh, ruled uh, for the Knight First Amendment uh, project there and against Trump and said essentially that the interactive space on Trump's Twitter account the interactive space on the Twitter account being where you can reply and comment and, you know, hit like and all that was the equivalent of a public forum. He had opened it up as a public forum because he was using it for governmental policies. And we know, obviously, in First Amendment jurisprudence that the government cannot engage in viewpoint based discrimination. And essentially, that's what Trump was doing. He was only blocking those or banning those from his his personal account at Real Donald Trump, those who didn't like him. So he would allow everybody else who liked him. And that's the essence of viewpoint-based discrimination. Another important case here was back in 2017, a case called Packingham versus North Carolina, which involved a registered sex offender and his access to social media. And North Carolina adopted a statute that banned registered sex offenders from accessing social media accounts. Obviously, it was very well intended, designed to uh, prevent those registered sex offenders from you know, reaching minors online and engaging, and engaging in nefarious acts there. But the Supreme Court struck it down as far too broad, and Justice Kennedy wrote in kind of this glorious dicta about extolling the virtues of cyberspace and the internet. And he said it is the modern day square, the modern day public square. So the amazing thing is here, the Supreme Court 
and Justice Kennedy in 2017 in the Packingham case has actually laid the groundwork for what Florida is trying to do here in terms of equating social media platforms with a modern day public square. The pivotal difference, of course, is that when we think of public squares like public parks and public sidewalks and public streets, those are owned by the government. And when we're talking about social media platforms, of course, those are private entities. So that's the major difference. But yes, it's a great strategic move on the part of Florida to try to equate these because there is background in both the Trump Twitter case uh, and the Packingham case for thinking about social media platforms as public squares today. You know, it's interesting. I think further complicates that is that uh, a lot of the communication lines, and it's how we're, we're interacting with people today, especially during COVID-19, is virtually. But these communication lines have at least at some point have to go through publicly owned or publicly shared copper or airwaves or somehow, you know, get from point A to point B. And they pass through a lot of property that's kind of pseudo owned by the city, pseudo owned by the state. So, you know, it becomes really interesting there. You know, when you start talking about the public square. Well, it's going through a public apparatus to get to someone, uh, a member of the public. So I think that that could further complicate things. But I want to talk about a related issue before we get into Section 230, the Fairness Doctrine. I've been hearing about a lot of this because, uh, you know, the recent passing of Rush Limbaugh, you know, uh, there's been, been a lot of talk about the Fairness Doctrine of uh, from the FCC. And this was a doctrine back in the 80s that uh, went by the wayside under the Reagan administration. But essentially what it did is if you had a broadcast license and you were presenting a controversial topic, you were required to present both sides of the issue in an honest, equitable and balanced way. And so obviously, right there, that's going to be a tough one to measure. But, you know, and also the other fact is that there's maybe more than two sides of an issue that may come up on any given topic. But um, how is what Governor DeSantis suggesting in some of his uh, public proclamations there any different than the Fairness Doctrine back from the 80s? Sure. I mean, you're raising a really good question. Yeah. And exactly as I said, the Fairness Doctrine told broadcasters, free over-the-air broadcasters, that they had to cover all public issues and had to cover them fairly, meaning, as you suggested, showing all sides. The difference here is the medium in question. And that's really the sticking point. Do we want to start treating the internet as akin to broadcasting and regulate it more closely with the FCC regulating it more closely to serve as broadcasters have to do the public interest, convenience, and necessity. And that's why the Fairness Doctrine was adopted because viewers should receive, and that's the key thing in the marketplace of ideas, all types of speech, all information on issues of public concern, all viewpoints on them. And so you're raising a great question. Do we want greater FCC regulation of the internet and treated akin to broadcasting such that the FCC and the Federal Communications Commission can step in and require social media platforms to cover issues of public concern and key show all viewpoints. In other words, not censor particular viewpoints. That would be a major change in terms of our jurisprudence and how we've looked at it uh, because the court, the Supreme Court back in 1997 in a case called Reno versus ACLU involving Janet Reno and part of the Communications Decency Act, not Section 230, but another part basically said that speech on the internet and internet speakers deserve the same amount of protection as those in the print medium, which is the maximum amount of First Amendment protection. In other words, we're not going to qualify it. So we can regulate broadcasters much more closely because they don't own the airwaves. As you know, they just get a, a license to uh, operate in the public interest. And so the FCC can regulate them more closely. So we'd have to kind of overcome the hurdle of Reno versus ACLU in 1997 that says speakers on the internet get full First Amendment protection. But it's a, it's a fabulous question to raise right now at the macro level of should we regulate them? Not can we, but really should we regulate them more closely? 
Well, and for what it's worth, this podcaster would prefer that the FCC not apply any more regulation to the podcast <laughs> industry. So obviously, oh, yeah, obviously self-serving, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I get it. <laughs> so, well, let, let's transition over to Section 230. So this is one that came up quite frequently when I was reading all these different articles, kind of taking different sides and bends to uh, some of Go- Governor DeSantis's uh, wish list for for legislation in uh, Florida. Section 230 was brought up, and so I'm just going to do a brief flyby of this for our listeners that are a little less familiar with uh, Section 230 professor. And so Section 230 is the reason we have the internet. It's the reason we have social media. It's the reason we have websites and blogs, and we can publicly put up our opinions. And the reason for that is that the companies that support that, the infrastructure, the hardware, the software that hosts your website, that uh, connects you to the internet, they are not held liable if you do something defamatory against somebody else. And that's because of Section 230. So Section Section 230, you know, protects companies like Amazon Web Services. It protects, you know, your uh, internet service provider, you know, whether you're using a Spectrum or Comcast or whatever it is that you use, you know, it protects them from things that you say. (laughs) And so if you post something up there, they're not going to get sued for it, essentially. Now, it has some carve outs for it. And so to the degree one of those platforms takes an editorial role and acts more like the New York Times or the New York Post, you know, then they start opening themselves up for lawsuits if they say something defamatory. But it's got this little carve out section that allows, you know, like Amazon Web Services or your web server to police some of the content if they don't want pornography on there. And there's kind of a limited category of things under Section 230, something uh, filthy, something obscene, something lewd, something that's objectionable. They can censor that a little bit, not censor so much, but remove it. That's where the fight is. And so let's talk about Section 230 in terms of state professor. You know, Florida wants to put more bite into something like Section 230. So let's say Governor DeSantis says, we like Section 230, but we want to uh, we want to put some sharper teeth on it. You can also not discriminate against political parties. Can they do that? Or are they preempted by federal law? Well, it, uh, Section 230 is a federal statute. So Correct. what he, yeah, so what he would do would be independent of that. And then the exactly right, the question of federal preemption, does the federal statute preempt the field in that? And part of it too, I think comes in, do we want this like patchwork quilt across the United States of all states trying to regulate social media platforms in different fashion? Or do we want a more unified approach that would be obviously the federal government and Congress issuing a statute? I think that's probably the preferred way. Otherwise, we would get into the situation where I think of like car regulations uh, for you know fuel efficiency, and California has the most stringent one, so everybody follows California. Do we want that with the state systems here where Florida says, okay, we want more teeth into Section 230, and you cannot deplatform someone because of their viewpoint. Do we want all states to do that? I think it's probably better left at the federal level, but the, the preemption question is clear there. And that would be something that the courts would obviously have to sh- you know, sort out in that situation. Section 230 is really under fire, though, as as you know, in a lot of different quarters today. I think both from the right and left, uh, it is exactly what allowed the Internet to grow and to flourish. And I think uh, from the left, Section 230 uh, is sometimes under attack because they don't see social media platforms doing enough to take down disinformation things that may have influenced the election in 2016, for instance, that they find false speech. Uh, And on the other hand, uh, conservatives believe that social media platforms are unfairly taking down their content. We've seen carve-outs now starting to come down from Section 230 uh, recently with sex trafficking. That was the FOSTA legislation uh, that passed a couple years ago that Trump signed into law, which does not give them immunity if they host 
third-party content that uh, promotes sex trafficking. That was the basis for that one or the impetus. So now the question is, too, do we want to put more teeth into Section 230? We're going to carve out more exceptions from it. But I think Section 230 is really in trouble in the United States Congress today, and again, from both sides. And we're going to see action, I think, on that under Joe Biden's uh, leadership. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, that was certainly one of my concerns when the California Consumer Privacy Act came up, because, you know, although I liked a lot of the the consumer protection aspect of it, one of the things that worried me was, you know, uh, trying to design a business to operate in all 50 states and the scalability of the Internet and web based businesses. You know, if, if you have every 50 state has, you know, like a different regulation, it becomes really hard to comply with all that. So that was one of my worries, at least from a, uh, from a commerce point of view. <laughs> so absolutely. And, and you have to think about interstate commerce clause and, and going across states. And if you have this oh, one state and you go across the border, you can do that. You can't do that in another state. You know, that's the patchwork quilt that would be really harmful, I think. So anything has to come, I think, at least in my view, the better approach is federal legislation. But getting, getting Republicans and Democrats to agree on anything these days is going to be very difficult. But like I said, Section 230, kind of under fire from both sides, but for very different reasons. Yep. Uh, country's definitely divided. So, well, let, let me wrap it up with this question, Professor. You know, so let's, uh, you know, I often joke, you know, I wear different hats on the show, like my policy hat, my lawyer hat, and sometimes, you know, my taxpayer hat. So if you were to put on your Governor DeSantis hat, okay, so you're, you're Governor DeSantis for a day and, and you're, you know, you share his concern about political censorship from large tech companies or social media companies, how would you go about curtailing the impact of that, trying to maintain an open forum for the free exchange of speech? Would you go about it through legislation? Would you take a different tack? I know there's antitrust. Um, you know, maybe there's uh, divesting some financial investments from the state retirement fund is, was presented as one of the more colorful options that I read about. How would you go about it? You know, honestly, there's you can only do so much on the encouragement front and, and, and meeting with social media platform leaders. I think that's obviously the first step that you would try to do. Meet meet with the the big tech, as it were, uh, companies. You know, the Amazons, the the Apples, uh, the Facebooks, the Googles of the world, and try to talk to them. Have meetings, sit downs uh, with their leaders and their heads. Legislation. You know, the question is whether legislation is for scoring political points or whether it's for doing larger good. I think, especially the disclosure and opt-out provisions on how they use our data. I think that's very important and people need that type of protection. If I were doing it, the antitrust front might have a little bit of appeal that these companies have become so large and so powerful, they need to be broken up. I don't know how effective that would be. We can think about breaking up the bell system back in the day. Would that be useful here? Or And then would we go back to more monopolies? It's interesting. In one of DeSantis' press releases, uh, he referred to them as the Silicon Valley oligarchs. Uh, so, so he's basically suggesting as much that it's controlled by a few, you know, in these types of situations. I'm not sure whether I have the answer to this. I mean, there got to be multiple avenues of approach. Do you do it from encouragement, number one? Do you do it through legislation? Do you do it from breaking them up for antitrust? Or do we want to go in and have the FCC start treating them more vigorously, as was suggested earlier, akin to broadcasters and mandate that they serve the public interest? I don't think there's an easy solution to this. Yeah, I agree. It's going to be a balancing act, you know, and some of the some of the suggestions I've heard on this was to uh, one of the things is you have to open these platforms up to allow for competition and then the competition, you know, can level that out. You know, as as things become more censored on one platform, people are going to turn to another to read, you know, about things that they're interested in. And so people walk with their dollars and that might be the best way to get kind of an all 
you know, kind of an all covering solution to that. But uh, Professor, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Without you, there's no show and that's no fun. Also, once again, thank you to Noda, our sponsor for making this program possible. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And lastly, but never, never, never leastly, want to thank our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN crew for keeping it groovy. Thank you so much. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 